Chapter Fourteen of My Mark Twain. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. My Mark Twain by William Dean Howells. Chapter Fourteen. There came a time when the lecturing which had been the joy of his prime became his loathing, loathing unutterable, and when he renounced it with indescribable violence. Yet he was always hankering for those flesh-pots whose savour lingered on his palate, and filled his nostrils after his withdrawal from the platform. The author's readings, when they had won their brief popularity, abounded in suggestion for him. Reading from one's book was not so bad as giving a lecture, written for a lecture's purpose, and he was willing, at last, to compromise. He had a magnificent scheme for touring the country, with Aldrich and Mr. G. W. Cable and myself, in a private car, with a cook of our own, and every facility for living on the fat of the land. We should read only four times a week in an entertainment that should last not more than an hour and a half. He would be the impresario, and would guarantee us others at least seventy-five dollars a day, and pay every expense of the enterprise, which he provisionally called the circus himself. But Aldrich and I were no longer in those early thirties when we so cheerfully imagined memorable murders for subscription publication. We both abhorred public appearances, and, at any rate, I was going to Europe for a year. So the plan fell through, except as regarded Mr. Cable, who, in his way, was as fine a performer as Clemens, and could both read and sing the matter of his books. On a far less stupendous scale, they too made the rounds of the great lecturing circuit together. But I believe a famous lecture manager had charge of them, and travelled with them. He was a most sanguine man, a most amiable person, and such a believer in fortune, that Clemens used to say of him, as he said of one of his early publishers, that you could rely upon fifty per cent of everything he promised. I, myself, many years later, became a follower of this hopeful prophet, and I can testify that, at least in my case, he was able to keep ninety-nine, and even a hundred percent, of his word. It was I who was much nearer failing of mine, for I promptly began to lose sleep from the nervous stress of my lecturing, and the gratifying but killing receptions afterward, and I was truly in that state from insomnia, which Clemens recognized in the brief letter I got from him in the western city, after half a dozen wakeful nights. He sardonically congratulated me on having gone into the lecture field, and then he said, I know where you are now. You are in hell. It was this perdition which he re-entered when he undertook that round-the-world lecturing tour for the payment of debts left to him by the bankruptcy of his firm in the publishing business. 
it was not purely perdition for him, or, rather, it was perdition for only one half of him, the author half. For the actor half, it was paradise. The author who takes up lecturing without the ability to give histrionic support to the literary reputation which he brings to the crude test of his reader's eyes and ears, invokes a peril and a misery unknown to the lecturer who has made his first public from the platform. Clemens was victorious on the platform from the beginning, and it would be folly to pretend that he did not exult in his triumphs there. But I suppose with the wearing nerves of middle life, he hated more and more the personal swarming of interest upon him, and all the inevitable clatter of the thing. Yet he faced it, and he labored round our tiresome globe that he might pay the uttermost farthing of debts which he had not knowingly contracted, the debts of his partners, which had meant well and done ill, not because they were evil, but because they were unwise, and as unfit for their work as he was. Pay what thou owest. That is right, even when thou owest it by the error of others, and even when thou owest it to a bank, which had not lent it from love of thee, but in the hard line of business and thy need. Clemens' behavior in this matter redounded to his glory among the nations of the whole earth, and especially in this nation, so wrapped in commerce and so little used to honor among its many thieves. He had behaved like Walter Scott, as millions rejoiced to know, who had not known how Walter Scott had behaved till they knew it was like Clemens. No doubt it will be put to his credit in the books by the recording angel, but what the judge of all the earth will say of it at the last day there's no telling. I should not be surprised if he accounted it of less merit than some other things that Clemens did and was, less than his abhorrence of the Spanish War and the destruction of the South African Republics, and our deceit of the Filipinos, and his hate of slavery, and his payment of his portion of our race's debt to the race of the colored student whom he saw through college, and his support of a poor artist for three years in Paris, and his loan of opportunity to the youth who became the most brilliant of our actor-dramatists, and his eager pardon of the thoughtless girl who was near paying the penalty of her impertinence with the loss of her place, and his remembering that the insolent breakerman got so few dollars a month, and his sympathy for working men standing up to money in their unions, and even his pity for the wounded bird throbbing out its little life on the grass for the pleasure of the cruel fool who shot it. These, and the thousand other charities and beneficences in which he abounded, openly or secretly, may avail him more than the discharge of his firm's liabilities with the judge of all the earth, who surely will do right, but whose measures and 
criterions no man knows, and I least of all men. He made no great show of sympathy with people in their anxieties, but it never failed, and at a time when I lay sick for many weeks, his letters were of comfort to those who feared I might not rise again. His hand was out in help for those who needed help, and in kindness for those who needed kindness. There remains in my mind the dreary sense of a long, long drive to the uttermost bounds of the South End at Boston, where he went to call upon some obscure person whose claim stretched in a lengthening chain from his early days in Missouri, a most inadequate person, in whose vacuity the gloom of the dull day deepened till it was almost too deep for tears. He bore the ordeal with grim heroism, and silently smoked away the sense of it as we drove back to Cambridge, in his slippered feet, somberly musing, somberly swearing. But he knew he had done the right, the kind thing, and he was content. He came the whole way from Hartford to go with me to a friendless play of mine, which Alessandro Salvini was giving in a series of matinees to houses never enlarging themselves beyond the count of the brave two hundred who sat it through, and he stayed my fainting spirit with a cheer beyond flagons, joining me in my joke at the misery of it, and carrying the fun farther. Before that he had come to witness the aesthetic suicide of Anna Dickinson, who had been a flaming light of the political platform in the war days, and had been left by them consuming in a hapless ambition for the theatre. The poor girl had had a play written especially for her, and as Anne Boleyn she ranted and exhorted through the five acts, drawing ever nearer the utter defeat of the anti-climax. We could hardly look at each other for pity, Clemens sitting there in the box he had taken, with his shaggy head out over the corner, and his slippered feet curled under him. He either went to a place in his slippers, or he carried them with him, and put them on as soon as he could put off his boots. When it was so that we could no longer follow her failure and live, he began to talk of the absolute close of her career, which the thing was, and how probably she had no conception that it was the end. He philosophized the mercifulness of the fact, and of the ignorance of most of us, when mortally sick or fatally wounded. We think it is not the end, because we have never ended before, and we do not see how we can end. Some can push by the awful hour, and live again, but for Anna Dickinson there could be, and was, no such paling genesis. Of course we got that solemn joy by reading her fate aright, which is the compensation of the wise spectator in witnessing the inexorable doom of others. End of chapter 14 Read by Dennis Sayers in Modesto, California for LibriVox. 
Winter 2007